was the best of times because from a professional perspective, that's what I joined the army to do. I was in the army to do difficult things, working with my soldiers to make a difference, to make a contribution. That was, you know, the opportunity of a professional lifetime. But it was also the worst of times because every day you dealt with the risk and the fear of what might happen. You know, I, I remember occasions where it was literally hour by hour. You know, you would carve your way through the day. You can get to 11 o'clock and make it to lunchtime. <laughs> and it, you know, the, the level of pressure and threat that you had to deal with was kind of off the scale. Welcome back to the Run Life podcast. Our theme this week is the importance of endurance and perseverance, especially when times get tough. All of those things combined, you know, give you this perspective about focusing on what really matters. What do you really value? Not just in your professional life, but in your personal life. You know, what really matters? And I think when you go through these difficult experiences, you can you can channel and harness them in a positive, positive way. And that's what I've tried to do over the years since I was there. Our guest this week is someone who's had multiple careers. First of all, in the army, and then secondly, as a politician, first of all as a mayor and now as a member of parliament. And as you're here, running is a thread that goes all the way through. It, it gives me a lot. I mean, I constantly have conversations with busy people who tell me that they haven't got time to go for a run. Now, I kind of, to an extent, get where they're coming from. But, but my thinking around this is it, even if you are very busy, if you've got lots of things to do, Time invested in a run is time very well spent. Because I think particularly if you are busy, you need that air gap. You need that peace and calm of being able to go out for a run, clear your mind, think about stuff, whatever it is you want to think about, whether that's personal stuff or whether that's work stuff. I have always found that being out in the fresh air, having that run makes me feel better. Dan is certainly someone who has had to draw on a sense of meaning and purpose to get him through when things have been difficult in life. My experience of these things is if you make a mistake, if you get something wrong, the public can be quite forgiving. So they will accept that we're not perfect, none of us are. So if you make a mistake and you do something that's, you know, that's a bit silly, hold your hands up to it quickly and apologize and move on. But what the public can't abide, rightly so, is people who try and bluff their way through it, people who try and kind of cover up their mistakes, and people with whom they think are not being transparent or honest. Welcome to the Run Alive podcast, Dan Jarvis. I'm Dan Jarvis. I'm the MP for Barnsley Central. I'm also the Shadow Security Minister. For four years, I was the first mayor of South Yorkshire. Um, I've written a book, uh, it's called Long Way Home, uh, which is about love, life and death and all the stuff in between. And before that, for 15 years, I was in the army, in the parachute regiment. But the golden thread uh, throughout my life has been running. And that's why it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast today. Oh, thank you for coming. We're delighted. You know, the, the golden thread that runs through this whole podcast is running. So that's a brilliant way to uh, start our, our conversation. Dan, what makes you come alive? Well, in a purely practical sense, it's my alarm clock. I set my alarm <laughs> clock pretty early in the morning. 
Um, my routine differs a bit depending on whether I'm at home in Barnsley or down in Westminster. If I'm at home, I get up pretty early, I take the dog out, I feed the chickens. But wherever I am, I always wake up and look at the list of things that I want to do throughout the course of the day. So I try and keep myself uh, pretty busy. Um, quite often, there'll be a requirement to do early morning media. Um, so I'll be on the radio or possibly even doing something on, on the TV. Um, but I am very much a, a morning person. I think it's amazing the amount of things that you can get done between about six and about seven. The phone isn't ringing. The emails aren't arriving. The messages aren't pinging in. You can just begin the day with hopefully a bit of calm uh, and a bit of fo focus and a bit of purpose and, and, and get stuff done uh, and get things set up for, for what will hopefully be a, a productive working day. Mm. And talking about starting the day, the last couple of weeks since you were promoted to Shadow Minister for Security have been quite busy ones. Tell us a little bit about uh, that sort of roller coaster that you embarked on. Well, Parliament is really divided into two parts, those people who are on the front bench and those who are on the back bench. And for eight years, I was on the back bench. And your life is basically your own and you come and go as you please. And there's less of a requirement to be kind of slavishly following the party line. Uh, but the point at which you become a front bencher, you need to be much more aware of you know, what, what, what are the party's specific policies because you're bound by collective responsibility. So you have to be very clear about what you say publicly. Um, I think in terms of my specific role as a shadow minister for security, it was a bit of a, uh, a baptism of fire in that within a couple of hours of getting the job, a terror suspect had escaped from Wandsworth Prison. This was big news uh, and was an important national story. So very quickly, I was having to get my head into that. And then there have been a number of other security-related stories over the past 10 days or so. And very quickly, you have to read yourself into your brief and get a sense of what are the particular areas that you want to make a contrib contribution in. It's fascinating, important stuff, uh, but you have to get on top of it pretty quickly. Uh, busy few weeks, Dan. And obviously, the critical question is, have you managed to fit in any running in the last couple of weeks since the new job has started? That That is the critical question. The, the answer is yes, I have. Um, <laughs> I, I've maybe dipped a little bit in terms of the sort of the, the, the volume of runs. But I think there's, there's something to be said that when you're under a bit of pressure, when you're doing something new and different that you are going to find professionally challenging, to try and maintain that routine mm -hmm. and that balance of continuing to get out and, and have a run. I remember um, the first four or so days uh, down in Westminster with this new role were really busy. I was um, going to meetings, I was doing media, I was meeting with stakeholders, I was trying to get a sense of the brief, some of which is pretty complicated. And then when I got back home to Yorkshire, pretty much the first thing that I did was um, go out for a bit of a run. I wouldn't say it was a particularly long or a particularly quick run, but I did one of my favourite routes and it was just a great way to decompress mm -hmm leave the city behind me and kind of make that transition back into the routine of being at home. And I did find it incredibly peaceful and relaxing being able to do that. Yeah, go on, getting a sense of peace and relaxation, actually hearing you describe it as well. Um, let's, go, um, let's go back a bit. So you mentioned that running has been a huge part of your life all the way through, and you, you talked about times of being under pressure. 
Um, one time we'd like to focus on, if we can, is your uh, deployment in 2007 out to Helmand in, with the Army. We know that wasn't uh, an easy decision even to go. Could you just take us back to that, that time in your life, that what was going on for you and the choice you had to make? The hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life was whether to go to Afghanistan, specifically to Helmand province, in the summer of 2007. I guess I was torn between my personal responsibilities to my family, but also my professional loyalty to my regiment. I've been offered the opportunity to go and do a very challenging, complex operation uh, with uh, my battalion, One Para, the Special Forces Support Group to set up um, a training camp um, in a remote desert area of Helmand to train Afghan soldiers uh, to go and fight the Taliban. It was something that, from a professional point of view, was an extraordinary opportunity and something that I was very, very keen to want to go and do. But at the same time, it was a very difficult time for my family, very difficult time personally, because my wife had been diagnosed um, with cancer 18 months or so before. Now, at this particular moment, she'd had treatment and she was doing well, uh, but it was still a very difficult thing uh, for us collectively as a family to decide. It, it, it may seem like quite a strange thing to say, but what my wife wanted was a sense of normality. And for us, our normality was me going off and doing these things. Mm. I was in the parachute regiment. I traveled around the world. I did things that were pretty difficult, pretty complex, and pretty challenging. And our normality was me continuing to do those things. So it was an extremely difficult judgment as to whether it was the right thing for me to put myself in a situation um, such as I would uh, be facing in Afghanistan. But in the end, we decided together that that was the right thing uh, to do. And that's what I, I subsequently went and do went and did. But for a variety of other reasons, it meant that I um, I didn't arrive in Afghanistan particularly well prepared. I was still um, really kind of wrecked with doubt about whether I was doing the right thing. Um, and I remember very clearly arriving there and having all sorts of thoughts about whether I'd mm. made a massive mistake and wrestling with this sort of dynamic that I was having to, mm. to deal with. But in the end, I took the view that I was there. I had to make the best of it. People were depending on me. My soldiers were depending on me to do the best possible job I could under very difficult circumstances. So I had to put all of that behind me and get on with it. And that's mm. what I tried to do. Mm. It must have been such a hugely challenging time. I mean, you can, I mean, I can hear it in the way you described it. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's still, um, yeah, challenges you even now, perhaps. Um, when you arrived in Helmand, it was... Um, it was obviously an incredibly dangerous place to be. I don't imagine you just easily go running in a war zone, but you told us that running was part of the experience of being there, part of your experience, part of your regiment's experience. How, how practically did you manage to do that and how did you fit it in? Well, Afghanistan in 2007 was a pretty dangerous place to be. The level of threat was very high from the Taliban specifically the risk from improvised explosive devices was through the roof. Mm. And that was at a point where we were still developing the capabilities to respond to that level of threat. British soldiers were being killed all around us. It was a really, really demanding period of time. I think it is um, 
deeply ingrained within the psyche of a soldier and certainly within the psyche of an airborne soldier, a paratrooper, to both want and to need to keep as fit as possible. Mm. So when you're in camp in the UK, an important part of your daily routine is exercise. Generally, you will start the day with a pretty demanding um, session, mostly around running, but with other activities as well. When we were in Afghanistan, based in our desert camp, we needed to maintain a high level of fitness. So even though it was incredibly hot, it got quite cold at night, but during the day it was incredibly hot, we thought it was very important to maintain that physical regime and to keep ourselves as fit as we possibly could. Now, next to our camp, our camp was in the middle of the desert, miles from any roads, miles from any kind of populated civilization. And next to our camp was this quite prominent hill feature. <laughs> and what we would do whenever we could was we would run out of our camp. We always have, have to have um, an armed guard who was there to provide us with some sort of protection. But as a group, we would run out of the camp to the bottom of the hill. Now, there was a reasonably good gravel track up to the top of this hill, but we would sort of kind of collect ourselves at the bottom of the hill, we would line up, and then we would run up the hill. Sometimes we'd do it together as a squad, sometimes we'd do it individually. For some of us, we were racing each other. Sometimes we were just kind of racing ourselves, um, and it became an important part of our daily routine, and it helped keep us fit. Now, it was hard work, uh, and it was a tough climb to get to the top of the hill, but we always massively enjoyed the peace and the calm that we got stood on the top of the hill mm. often very early in the morning enjoying you know the amazing views out over the desert and we'd kind of sort of take a moment just to enjoy that and then we'd run back down and that then became a really important part of our routine in camp and it helped keep us physically fit but I also think there's just mm. you know from a mental well-being point of view there was something really positive about that experience of coming together doing something that we enjoyed, that we found challenging, um, and then using that as the basis for, for, for starting the day and going off to do whatever it was we were doing that particular day. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit more about that wider significance of the rundown. It, it, it kept you fit, but I can hear in how you're describing it, it did something for the group, right? What, did it, what do you think it kind of did for you all? I think it's part of the process of bonding us as a team. When you're in that kind of situation, there is no space really for individuality. Mm. Your lives are in the hands of other people and their lives are in, in your hands. So you are incredibly close-knit as a group of people who are there with a shared identity because you are part of a regiment, a regiment with a particular ethos, a regiment that prides itself on achieving very high professional standards. And you are in that place working together to get really tough stuff done. Mm. So there is that kind of incredible bond of friendship, that camaraderie that you know, perhaps you wouldn't get elsewhere. Mm. Um, so I think under those circumstances, you know, doing things together is, is how you kind of gel the team. It's how you kind of maintain that sort of team spirit. And it was just a ritual that we did yeah. together. And, you know, when you explain the physical act of lining everybody up at the bottom of a very steep hill, 
and then running up it sometimes in not, not quite the heat of the day, but certainly, you know, uh, in, in a climate that is going to be challenging. A lot of people would think, well, you know, that's going to be quite hard work. People wouldn't necessarily want to do it. But everyone wanted to do it because we understood the importance of maintaining that sort of peak level of fitness. Mm-hmm. And also, as I say, I, th- I think we collectively enjoyed it. We enjoyed being on that hill together. Yeah. We got the opportunity to test our metal against ourselves and against each other. You know, it was very competitive in a pretty friendly way. Yeah. Um, and that is part of the nature of, you know, service in a, in a regiment such as that. So it was a, an entirely positive experience. Um, and I, st- I still think about that hill. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe one day I'll get the opportunity uh, to go and run back up it again. I've never oh. been back, but maybe wow. one day I'll be able to, to run it for real. I sometimes run it in my head and I sometimes remember what it was like stood on the top but it was um it was a really good useful little test for us yeah that sounds like a bucket list hill session for sure (laughs) um so and that we've already touched on how challenging the decision to go to afghanistan was but also the the relative challenges of actually being there but um those kind of challenges uh that need to endure and to persevere when times are hard in life often then shape our um shape the way that we you know shape our our worldview and our beliefs going forward um was that the case for you did that did that time in afghanistan shape uh what you think of as your worldview and what matters for you now it definitely did i mean i consider myself fortunate although i didn't necessarily think that at the time to have had what essentially was a great apprenticeship for doing other things mm-hmm. because you know, it, the, the nature of the world in which I live in now, which is politics, you know, things um, get thrown at you, whatever you do, there will always be people who don't like what you've said or don't like what you do. And you can never please all of the people all of the time. And you have to have very thick skin because on social media, people will be, you know, saying all sorts of things about you in the local paper, you know, even though you, do your best and work very hard. There'll be people who say that, you know, you're this, that, and the other. So you need the skin of a rhino, really, to kind of (laughs) endure that kind of very intensive environment of scrutiny. I consider myself to be extremely fortunate that I can look back on not just that period in Afghanistan in 2007, but at other points in my service in the army and know that things aren't going to be as difficult. They're not going to be as physically challenging, as mentally demanding as they were during my time in the army. And I think I'm able to draw some some heart from all of that because I I just think it gives you a a perspective, a judgment about what's really important. And I think it just enables you to kind of cut to the chase and, and work out what is it you really need to be doing. And I think it gives you that really helpful focus. So even though it was, you know, an extraordinarily challenging time, I previously described it as being the best and the worst of times. Mm. What's the best of times? Because from a professional perspective, that's what I joined the army to do. I was in the army to do difficult things, working with my soldiers to make a difference, to make a contribution. That was, you know, the opportunity of a professional lifetime. So in that regard, combined with the fact that I was doing it with the amazing people. You know, soldiers have this resilience. They have that humour. You know, they can always find another gear to move up in, however difficult things are. And in that respect, it was the best of times. 
But it was also the worst of times because every day you dealt with the risk and the fear of what might happen. You know, I, I remember occasions where it was literally hour by hour. You know, you would carve your way through the day. You can get to 11 o'clock, you can make it to lunchtime. <laughs> and it, you know, the, the level of pressure and threat that you had to deal with was kind of off the scale. And of course, you know, for me, particularly in Afghanistan in 2007, that there was that nagging doubt about whether I should even have been there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that made it the worst of times. So I think all of those things combined, you know, give you this perspective about focusing on what really matters. What do you really value? Not just in your professional life, but in your personal life. You know, what really matters? And I think when you go through these difficult experiences, you can you can channel and harness them in a positive positive way. And that's what I've tried to do over the years since I was there. So Dan, there's a lot in there about the shaping of shaping of you in a way, if you like. I'm also curious to know if some of those experiences have shaped what you want to bring about in the world through your political career. Did it solidify some some values for you that 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 you think, well, you know, this is now what I stand for and this is what I want to try and make happen in the world? It absolutely did. The motto of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst is serve to lead. Mm. And what's that What's that actually about? That is about a set of values that need to be invested in the leader. And if you look at recent political history, you know, I think it's not unreasonable to say that we've seen leadership that hasn't aspired to be at that kind of highest level. Mm. You know, the army places a lot of focus on what it describes as values and standards, courage, resilience, respect for others, integrity, loyalty, selfless commitment. These are things that people actually believe in and aspire aspire to fulfil in their professional conduct. And I think that is a very good metric for service in public life. And I think I don't want to be too kind of sort of... um, glib about it but i think all those people who step forward to serve in public life have an absolute responsibility to give it their very best and to serve to lead and to lead by example and i think that that is you know the the big kind of takeaway uh from from my time in the army that the people deserve leaders who are going to commit and do the right thing and do it for the right reasons i think though that there are you know other things that i've kind of taken from particularly um, my time in Afghanistan. And that is, um, and I've mentioned this previously um, in my book, I talk about the importance of culture versus strategy. Mm. You can have these amazing strategies, you can do some amazing presentations, your PowerPoint can be excellent. But in the end, it is about what you do. And it is about the climate that you set in your workplace or wherever wherever it might be where you are very clear about the standards that you expect, but you set those standards yourself. Mm. I also think that that flowing out of that is, um, and the military talks about this a lot, is is the emphasis that is rightly placed on the importance of good morale. If in a unit or if in a workplace you've got good morale, if you've got people who've got a sense of purpose, who believe in their leadership, who believe in what they're doing, you can do extraordinary things. You know, it, it, even when times are tough, 
even when you're up against it, if you've got good morale, if your team believe in what it is they're trying to do, it's extraordinary what you can actually achieve. But conversely, if you haven't got mm. that, you're always going to struggle. So as a leader, ensuring that amongst your team, you have got that strong sense of purpose, that people know what their responsibilities are, that you delegate and invest faith and trust in them. You're clear about the purpose and what it is you want to achieve. Where you can, you let them get on with it. But having that sort of strong sense of purpose and having good morale is absolutely critical, whatever you're trying to do. And that is one of the values and ethos that I've taken from my time in the army that I try and employ in the world of politics, particularly as a mayor, mm. uh, not least during the pandemic, when I was having to make some pretty difficult decisions and I was having to corral my team to try and get things done that were, were pretty difficult. Just as um, uh, that got me really interested, it wasn't in our plan to talk about it, but just as a sort of side comment on that, um, as a mayor during COVID, um, how did you manage to maintain that sense of morale with your team? Presumably, you know, you were subject to the same restrictions as the rest of us, where it was hard to actually see them in person. How, how did, what did you, what did that practically look like for you? Well, it was quite challenging, particularly at the early point of the pandemic. I mean, I remember having really difficult conversations with senior police officers, with senior people in the NHS, about whether the system potentially was going to be able to cope with what was coming. You know, conversations with police officers about whether they would physically have enough people to maintain law and order. Difficult conversations with the local hospital about whether there could be enough people in ICU. Um, and, you know, for the first time in my life, I guess, really, you kind of genuinely are fearful about the sort of circumstances that you're operating in, given the sort of the unique nature of the threat that we were dealing with at that particular time. I mean, what I tried to do, and it will be for others to judge whether it was successful or not, was invest in my team this sort of sense that what we were doing was really important, that it was making a difference. There was a massive economic crisis that went alongside the, um, the, the sort of health crisis uh, that came from the pandemic. You know, businesses were under massive pressure. People were being furloughed and losing their job. You know, the economic stability that we tried to achieve within our region was a really important part of, 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 of the work that we were trying to do. So... What I tried to do was convey to people that actually the role that they were fulfilling was seriously important and that this was a moment for us as public servants to step up to the plate mm. um, and, and fulfil the commitments that I'd made as mayor to serving the public. Now, I think almost without exception, my team did that and, and they kind of embraced that opportunity to get stuff done under difficult circumstances. It, it really annoys me when politicians talk about um, the blob is this kind of expression that, that people use. There's been quite a lot of criticism recently of civil servants, mm -hmm. you know, politicians blaming civil servants for things not going wrong. I think that is really the wrong approach. You know, as a politician, ultimately, you have to take responsibility. If things go well, that is a credit to you. If they go badly, you have to shoulder that responsibility for yourself. And I'm really proud that my relatively small team, who were under massive pressure during the pandemic, stepped up to the plate, worked hard, and we did the very best that we could for the people that we represent. Mm. 
again, a bit um, not on our plan, Dan, but it, I'd like to talk about integrity. So what's coming through hugely to me from, from, from how you talk about how you lead, culture that you want to build, how what you want to role model is integrity matters enormously to you. My, we're, we're not a political podcast, by the way, in any way, but my perception of politics is it can be, for actually quite good reasons, quite hard to maintain your integrity. There's lots of choices have to be made. You have to be part of a team. You might not always agree with everything that you're required to go along with. How how do you <laughs> keep strive? What does it look like for you striving to keep it, your integrity whole as you do the tricky work of politics? What's that like? Mm. Well, let, let me firstly say that whilst there have been some pretty massive lapses when it comes to integrity. Yeah, from yeah. I'm not thinking of... about those. Those are the easy ones <laughs> to avoid, right? Yeah, they should be. But, <laughs> but, but I think it, it, it's important to counterbalance that by saying there's a lot of good people who step forward to serve in politics. You know, it doesn't necessarily make the news. And if you turn the TV on, what you will likely see coming out of the House of Commons is the confrontation across the dispatch box. Now, that's not criticism of the media. I understand why they want to show that particular element of the work that we do in Parliament. But the truth of the matter is that much of what we do is on a cross-party basis. I've worked very closely with a number of uh, politicians on the other side of the House. I've introduced two pieces of legislation that ultimately were successful that I could only ever have got through the House of Commons um, with support from members of other political parties. So there is quite a lot of good positive activity that takes place, which doesn't necessarily ever kind of capture the, the media headlines. And I think it is only fair to point out that there are a lot of people there who've stepped forward because they are public servants, they want to work hard, they want to serve their constituents, and they want to make their constituency and the world a better place. I, th I think in terms of, um, you know, how I ground myself in all of that, I mean, one of the best ways of doing it is being out and about talking to your constituents. You know, I, I can be down in Westminster doing all these different things and speaking in debates and meeting all sorts of different people, but... When I get back off the train in Barnsley on a Friday or a Thursday or whenever it is, you know, I'm the local MP. Mm. And people want to see me and they want to talk to me about what's important to them, which may well not be what I've been doing down in Parliament with some of the kind of meetings and some of the contributions to debates I've had. So your constituents and your constituency is a very good grounding. And I'm incredibly grateful to my constituents. They've elected me on numerous occasions even when you know they had reasons not to elect me because you know my party wasn't particularly popular at that particular moment but they've invested their faith and trust in me as their local representative now i think i owe it to them to treat that faith with the the seriousness that it deserves and that's why and it comes at some cost you know um, you know being a member of parliament it's not a job it's a complete way of life. Mm. And to do it properly consumes you seven days a week. I'll be working Saturday. I've got stuff on Sunday. Um, you know, every bank holiday I'm doing sort of things out and about. It is a busy, mm. all-encompassing uh, role. But that's what people deserve. Mm. They deserve someone who's going to roll up their sleeves and give it their best shot. And my approach to it is making sure that I repay that faith and trust in my constituents who've elected me to serve them in Parliament. And I think the other thing about all of that is honesty. My experience of these things is if you make a mistake, 
if you get something wrong, the public can be quite forgiving. Mm. So they will accept that we're not perfect. None of us are. So if you make a mistake and you do something that's, you know, that's a bit silly, hold your hands up to it quickly mm. and apologise and move on. But what the public can't abide, rightly so, is people who try and bluff their way through it, people who try and kind of cover up their mistakes mm. and people with whom they think are not being transparent or honest. And that link to the constituency and that contact with my constituents is the thing that gives me that grounding and inspires me to get on and do the very best job that I can for, for my constituents in Barnsley. Mm. So wow. some important things there, Dan. Accountability yeah. I'm hearing as well. Very big. Sorry, Ed. No. Um... Thank you. I mean, you just spoke a little bit about how all-consuming uh, your role or the role, um, and I expect even more so now your role uh, as a front bencher uh, can be. Um, running for some people can be a creative time; it can be an escapist time. How does it work out for you um, in your day? How does it fit in? Is it uh, what do you? What does it give you uh, as you go about your daily life? It gives me a lot. I mean, I constantly have conversations with busy people who tell me that they haven't got time to go for a run. Mm. Now, I kind of, to an extent, get where they're coming from. But but my thinking around this is it, even if you are very busy, if you've got lots of things to do, time invested in a run is time very well spent. Because I think particularly if you are busy, you need that air gap. You need that peace and calm of being able to go out for a run, clear your mind, think about stuff, whatever it is you want to think about, whether that's personal stuff or whether that's work stuff. I have always found that being out in the fresh air, having that run makes me feel better. Mm. It is good for my physical health. It is good for my mental health in all the many, many years that I've been running, and I've been running for, for quite a few years now, I've never, ever come back from a run and felt anything other than better at the end of it than I did at the beginning of it. So what a fantastic return on the investment that is. I'm um, a, a relatively recent convert to podcasts. For many, many years, I, I, I kind of embraced and enjoyed the silence of being out running. Um, but in recent times, I don't, I don't always do it, but sometimes now I find it really kind of interesting and relaxing um, to have the opportunity to listen to a podcast. So that is a, that is another dynamic to the experience. Mm. You're getting that kind of physical uh, boost. You're getting that kind of sort of mental well-being boost from having that kind of time and space. But at the same time, actually, it also provides you a bit of Sort of space and calm to absorb other things for a podcast. So, you know, what a great in return on the investment of your time. Yeah. And we know you love the trails. We know you love getting into nature as a runner. We also know that you've run the London Marathon, I think I'm going to say a few times, 13 times. It's really embarrassing because I, I can never remember how many times I've run, run, run the marathon. But um, yeah, so you're, you're right. I, I love to be off road. I love to be running on trail races. Love to be in the mountains, the countryside. And I guess that's my happy place, if you want to describe it in that way. But at the same time, there is something very special about the London Marathon. I think mm -hmm. it is the ultimate festival of goodwill. I think it's an extraordinary thing that 
hundreds of thousands of people turn out to cheer people that often they don't know. So I think it's it's a wonderful event. I'm not a particularly uh, emotional person, but being stood at the start of the London Marathon is a very emotional experience because you've got all those hopes and all those dreams, mm. all those people who were there on the start line and they are running for some extraordinary charity that has touched their lives. Now, I think I've done 10 or so London Marathons for Cancer Research UK. Cancer is... You know, a hugely um, significant issue in my life and Cancer Research UK do extraordinary work and it's an absolute pleasure to run the marathon for them. But I, I, I'll i be honest with you, there have been a number of occasions where I've said, that's it, I'm not going to do the marathon again. <laughs> that normally only persists, frankly, for a matter of hours from the point at which I've finished. My, my team, they're all so bored of me saying, oh, I'm not going to do it next year. And then I always do it the following year because why wouldn't you? It, it's such a great event. It's such a great gathering. I mean, Two of my favourite marathons are London, obviously, and the Snowdonia Marathon. And they're very different Mm. in the sense that from the point at which you leave the start of the London Marathon to the point at which you finish, you've got that amazing wall of sound and noise of people sort of shouting Mm. your name and encouraging you on. And that's great. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming, but that's great. It's a very different dynamic for the Snowdonia Marathon, where there's, there's a few folk at the start, and there's a few folk at the end, but there are a lot, a few folk in, in, in Beth Gillett, but there are long stretches of nobody. Now, I quite like that because it's about you and you've got to find it from within and keep yourself going. Um, but I actually enjoy the sort of the dynamic of the two in slightly different ways. But yeah, the London Marathon is an extraordinary gathering and, and long may it continue. Mm-hmm. Um. Even though you know we've we've heard from you about the kind of the determination and the discipline and the perseverance that you've shown through your military career and you know, and how that's carried on to life, there must be times when fitting in a run or motivating yourself to go out for it is um, is still difficult. Uh, what what is it that gets you out of the door in those moments? Well, I'm I'm going to make a confession to you now. What gets me out of the door in those difficult moments, what gets me out of the door when the weather's really bad, when it's cold and miserable, is my personal trainer. <laughs> now, I know that to, for some people, they, they might sort of see this as a bit of a luxury. And I have found having this particular personal trainer to be quite expensive. But they're incredibly motivated in terms of getting me out. Uh, so I think it is money well spent. Uh, I mean, it is quite expensive because because um, I have to buy all of their food. Uh, and I should probably, for the purposes of transparency, also be clear about the fact that this personal trainer has got four legs because this personal <laughs> trainer is is my dog, a Springer Spaniel called Juno. And although I've always loved dogs and uh, I've had dogs over the years, I, I think from the point of view of the runner, having the dog there kind of looking at you and basically saying, when are we going for a run? is incredibly helpful. Now, maybe I would have gone, but there would be many occasions throughout the course, particularly over the winter, where maybe I wouldn't quite have had the motivation to drag myself out early on a Sunday morning to go for a run over the hills. But because we've got the dog, that is part of our life. And I don't want to let that dog down. And actually, I really enjoy the experience of being running through the woods with the dog and sometimes he runs off and that's a, that's a bit of a kind of sort of disruption uh, to, to my kind of my training regime such that it is. 
But I've just found that having the dog just makes a massive difference. The number of miles, and I log all of my miles quite carefully, mm. the number of miles that I'm able to run with a dog is much more than ever would be the case if we didn't have the dog. So the dog's been money well spent uh, and incredibly helpful in terms of, uh, of getting me out on those cold, wet January mornings. I love it. I think everybody should have a personal trainer that they have to get vaccinated and groomed and, <laughs> and have a blanket in the corner of the room. I think that would change the industry for the better. Um, uh, Dan, one thing that you talked about to us when we um, met you before this interview um, was about um, kind of your inner drive and, it, and it's come through in this conversation and, and you talked about it in relation to that time in Afghanistan and just um finding a way of carrying on i think was how you put it and it really um stayed with me and i've had a few ups and downs days and i'll be very honest a couple of times i've thought well got to find a way of carrying on dan was in much hotter water than this i can carry on there'll be people listening to the podcast who might need um a bit of encouragement what what would you say to them about how when you've been in super tough times and when i'm sure you'll have others to come how where does that will to find a way of carrying on come from for you what's the what's the inner dialogue like what could you say to them to motivate them yeah so it's a it's a great question i mean i've wrestled with this uh, over a number of years and i've thought a lot about when you're experiencing challenges how you can best deal with them and in my, my book i i talk a little bit about how i compartmentalize things and i put them in a particular box uh, for a period of time in order to focus on other things. Now, I'm not sure that's necessarily the best approach for everybody, but certainly when I was in Afghanistan, it was incredibly helpful to be very focused about what I was trying to do at that particular moment. I think that there are some things that you can do to help. I mean, I think there's a particular issue, and I experienced this with my constituents in Yorkshire, um, specifically re with regard to men, about um, when they've got problems, when they're sort of dealing with tough times, about talking to people about it. You know, I'm an MP in Yorkshire. You know, a lot of my constituents over the years, the, the men, you know, will bottle things up. They wouldn't necessarily want to have conversations if they were finding things difficult. I think the nature of our society is changing a bit. Um, and I think people, particularly men, are more willing to, to have what previously might have been quite difficult conversations to have about their own mental health and well-being. Um, and I think that that is, um, that is a very positive thing, that people are more prepared to do that than was the case certainly 10 or 15 years ago. I also think, though, that, that there's something about um, carving out time for yourself. You know, people often lead very busy lives. They're here, they're there, they're busy with work. They're sorting the kids out. You know, the nature of the lives that we lead and people fiddling with their phones the whole time means that there are all sorts of pressures, I think particularly for younger people, that, that perhaps wasn't the case you know, a generation or more ago. And I think for me, that emphasises the importance of trying to carve out some quality time. I mean, back to the point about running, you know, even when you're busy, even when you've got other things that you need to do, if you can carve out some quality time to step back from the pressures that you're dealing with, go for a run, or if you don't want to go for a run, go for a walk, get a bit of peace, a bit of quiet, a bit of calm, get your head together, and then go back to what it was that you were trying to do. And you know, my experience of these things, if you've had that, that moment, that break, that stepping back from what it is you're trying to deal with, you can then come back to it with a renewed freshness and a renewed vigour. 
I'm not saying it would work for everybody, but it's just been useful for me over the years in terms of trying to get stuff done um, and ensuring that, that I get a bit of peace and calm, uh, which makes me feel better and makes me feel better able to actually uh, address the challenges that I've been facing. Lovely. Well, thank you. I think you're a role model in sharing that as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Dan, for sharing your time and your stories and wisdom and inspiration with us. What's what? Just to finish, what are the things coming up for you uh, in the next few months? Um, and where might people be able to go to find out what you're working on, how they can get involved, find out more information about you? Well, I think the next few months are going to be pretty busy. I'm still trying to get my head into uh, my new brief as the Shadow Security Minister. You know, as a constituency MP, every week brings different challenges. So that will continue to keep me pretty busy for the foreseeable future, I think. In a running sense, I'm I'm definitely going to be uh, doing the London Marathon again next year. Um, <laughs> I want to try and get to a few more park runs. Mm. Massive fan of park run. I think park run is an extraordinary institution. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love doing it. Um, and I'm going to try and do a few more of them over the next few months. I've also um, started to think about, and this might be kind of beyond me, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be able to do this, but at some point I would dearly love to get organised to possibly have a crack at the Bob Graham round in the Lake District. That would be, you know, a huge undertaking for me. But I've started to do a little bit of background research and I've spoken to a few people, including my father. My father did the Bob Graham round many, many years ago. He he finished it with five seconds to spare, so he was cutting it pretty fine. Um, so I'd, I'd perhaps maybe I could finish it with 10 seconds to spare. I, I, I guess. <laughs> but um, I'm going to try and keep going with the running. Um, mm. I, I'm trying to kind of uh, spend as much time as I possibly can up in the hills. Fell races are great. I love the dynamic of a fell race because, you know, as a politician, you can walk through the town centre and 15 people will want to talk to you about parking or dog valley or whatever <laughs> it might be. If, if you line up at the start of the fell race, like nobody cares at UMP. They're just, <laughs> they are not bothered. And that's good for me. You know, I really enjoy the fact that I can just be on the start line um, with other folk about to um, compete in a fell race and no one's going to talk to me about um, dog fouling or, or, or parking. So hopefully can um, get a few fell races in. But in terms of um, uh, how to keep up speed with what I'm doing, I'm not sure we're allowed to call it Twitter anymore. I think isn't it now officially rebranded um, as X? We um, should probably know, but yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's too. So I'm at Dan Jarvis MP on X, formerly Twitter, um, and I try and um, keep a, a sort of fairly regular stream going on my at Dan Jarvis MP Facebook page as well. Mm. So that's where people can keep in touch. Fabulous. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. That's been um, really interesting, super inspirational as well. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Gary, I've got to say I'm a little bit blown away by that um, interview. What an amazing guy Dan is. Yeah, uh, there's so much he's done which is hard and challenging um super difficult but what shines through are his quite honestly i think amazing personal qualities that that come through that he 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 took some time to outline to us it's um yeah it was a pleasure to hear in many ways yeah and those values of honesty and integrity and 
Um, he's just such such a genuine guy. Um, mm. And, you know, as he touched on a couple of times, as he said that, you know, there have been plenty of examples in recent years of politicians who have not been that. So mm. what a breath of fresh air. Yeah, on, honestly, you, you get a very, or I certainly got a very clear sense that he, as I said, his integrity is enormously important to him. He chooses his words carefully because I think he knows they matter. I think he knows he's in a position of responsibility where people take what he say he says seriously. Um, and I think talking about taking it seriously, I, when he talked about um, serving to lead and that that sort of worldview that he developed in the army and that he's taken into politics, I think that runs, that's really sort of core and runs, you know, right right through him. Um, very genuine, very genuine. In terms of uh, this theme this week of perseverance and endurance my goodness me he's got some examples of putting that into practice as well um just leaping to mind or he said about you know there were times it was just almost a throwaway comment but he said about times in helmand where literally he was sort of chunking the day up into hours Mm. to make Mm. sure he got through them oh we got to 11 o'clock we got to 12 we got to lunch and you know the endurance and the drive to keep going and Mm. you know survive yeah fundamentally just live through the next hour goodness me that puts that puts things into perspective doesn't it yeah it completely does um i mean he's done some serious jobs hasn't he um talking about taking his team through when you asked him about covid um when he Mm. was mayor in barnsley and and just how he confronted the reality of that you could hear again his view on responsibility and leadership and the fact that they were really there for their constituents their people they had budget and safety responsibilities and very difficult decisions to make um yeah he's 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 done some tough stuff um and he's clearly very reflective and 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 thinks about in the moment um how to get through it how to make it meaningful how to build the culture how to make it motivating it's something that that is on his mind isn't it and I don't know if we use the word or he used the word purpose, but it's sort of something that surfaced for you and I listening to it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, these sort of things can be applied in in a variety of different places, whether that's at work and your times are tough because you're facing deadlines and you're up against it and you've got mm-hmm. to motivate yourself or motivate your team or even, you know, dare I bring us back to running in the last few miles of a marathon and yeah. you know when you think about why am I doing this and why should I keep going at a certain pace um and I think yeah we highlighted on on having your purpose well defined and understood would, mm. is often the thing that gets you through that so what can we do Gary to try and define that purpose yeah, it can be a tricky thing, a bit nebulous to think about what is a purpose and, and and how do I generate it. Just very quickly, think of a purpose as your overarching goal that you organise your other goals and activities and other things underneath. That's your purpose. And I think to get a great one, um, I've probably got three bits. Thinking about um, what you do, so the, the things that you do, the activities, etc., who you do those things for so a great purpose is other oriented it's directed outwards Mm. and then the last bit would be if you do those things and you do it for those people how do they benefit or change as a result those are potentially three i think great building blocks of a um of a purpose statement okay come on then so let's take me through this quickly so a practical example i'm i'm ed 
um, uh, we are working on, I'm working on a project at work, which is around um, warm spaces and mm. uh, a campaign to kind of get organizations to open up warm spaces for the winter. So uh, what's my purpose? How do I go through this exercise? I'm Ed, and what I'm doing is working on a campaign for open up warm spaces this winter what's the next question who are you doing it for okay so i'm doing it for these people who might need help to heat their homes and meet other people and um during during winter and just go to a warm and friendly space um so to help them uh yeah come in from the cold if you yeah like. and how do they benefit or what changes for them as a result of that well they um yeah, they've, they're equipped to fight, fight the cost of living, living to be a bit warmer, to not have to pay so much for their energy bills, uh, yeah. hopefully find some friends and connection as well. Yeah, and be um, safer and feel a sense of mm. belonging and, and, mm. and togetherness and, and all of that. And that, that yeah. I think, by the way, is a brilliant example because I've spoken to you about that work and um, there's a lot that goes into that. And that can be kind of sort of difficult and complex to pull off. So being able mm. to kind of have that moment of like, why am I slaving over the eighth version of this press release? Or what, why am I doing? <laughs> you can go back and say, well, hang on, we're doing it because there are some people that absolutely desperately need to benefit from the warm spaces mm. because it will be an enormous, make an enormous difference for them. And it's that that's where purpose comes from and, and, and it comes in and is useful because it can be motivating. It can kind of, it can keep you going. And if it's, other oriented and the more worthy it is it's a huge huge building block in your motivator hey by the way it also helps to have fun and do it with people you like along the way that's the other thing mm -hmm. absolutely help, yeah. okay so that's this week's run alive go do go and do some thinking on your purpose and answer those three questions what am i doing who am i doing it for and how do they benefit from what i'm doing top stuff Give us a follow on Instagram, LinkedIn, at Run Alive, or the Run Alive podcast on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, let us know what you thought of uh, this episode. We'd love to hear your questions, have your reflections on what Dan said. But also, if you come up with some great purposes, we'd love to hear your stories of those. 